Let's go ahead and get into what the service is here this morning as we are continuing our, and finishing, actually, our series on what is actually the second advent, uh, the return of Jesus Christ. And so I recognize there's a lot of visitors here today because you either had a grandchild, a neighbor that was singing this morning. Uh, but let me just kind of give an update. So back in September, we began this series uh, where we, we talked about how Jesus on the early morning or on a late part of a day on the most holy of weeks, so the week he was crucified, he was walking out of Jerusalem and a question was asked of him about his return and some things he had said while in Jerusalem about the destruction of the temple. And so the disciples were leaning in. It's like, when will you come back? We know you said you're leaving, but when will you come back? And what will be the signs of that return? And what will be the signs of the end? Well, he gave signs to look for in Matthews chapter 24 and 25. Or you can look in Luke uh, 21. He gave us signs to look for, but he did not give us a timeline. The Bible has many details concerning his return and what the end of times will be like. And these details are given to us to help us to know how to live and with expectancy and how to live with a prepared heart and mind. But committing to actual timelines seems to be of secondary importance because Jesus didn't take the bait. Even the disciples had the curiosity, like many of us do, that lean into the scriptures. Give us the times. We would really like to know, like, the exact time of your return and, and how it's actually going to play out. Jesus didn't give it, but he gave us signs and he gave us things to look for. Even through the Holy Spirit gave many different writers details about the end of times and his coming. But nowhere along the line do we have a clear orchestrated timeline as much as we like to try. And there are many good attempts at those timelines. But often what that does is it creates separation. When we start entrenching on timelines, which are our attempts to try to make sense of all of the prophetic statements... We end up entrenching on our idea and then it creates division between us and other people when we should just entrench ourselves on the idea, he's coming back. Are you ready? He's coming back and are you ready? And these signs that he talks about are a reminder to us that time is not in our hands and the urgency while we have time is to proclaim Jesus. So today and tomorrow, if it is given to us, is another day to fulfill the vision of Jesus. When he says in Matthew 24, 14, he says, I will return once my gospel, the good news of me, has gone out to the entire world. And we know that in Revelation it says that before the throne of God, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will be worshiping the Lamb of God. And so... Our opportunity as a church, as we take that great commission seriously, we're to go into all the world making disciples of Jesus Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we're going to keep doing that until he comes. And so that means we're going to take it to the whole world. And so we're going to continue that journey today. And so I'm going to ask that you open Bibles if you have them with you. If you do not, uh, our ushers are here and will gladly provide you them. We're going to be in 2 Peter today because we did finish Matthew 24 and 25. But we're going to be in 2 Peter today in chapter 1. And we do have a Bible app that we utilize. It's the YouVersion Bible app. If you have that on your tablet or phone, uh, you can go in there. If you go to the events tab, you'll find all the scriptures that we're going to be using today as part of that. 
So having said that, let me read, um, starting in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 16 to actually verse 21. And it says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received glory and honor from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have this prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So verse 16 again, it says, For we, Peter speaking about the disciples, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So what is Peter stating there that causes him to say, I was an eyewitness of his majesty? The coming of Christ has not happened yet, the, the second coming. And he's speaking of something pretty intimate that says he knows what the coming of the glory and power of Jesus Christ is going to look like because I've been an eyewitness of it. Well, he's actually pointing to a moment that had happened to him uh, prior to Jesus going to Jerusalem to be crucified. It was up in northern Israel um, after they had been Caesarea Philippi for some time. They went and just, it was Peter, James, and John along with Jesus went to a mountain. And while on that mountain, it says that the, the full glory of who Jesus is was revealed. And we call that being the moment of transfiguration. The Mount of Transfiguration where the full glory and power of who Jesus is was now seen by Peter, James, and John. Now keep in mind, Peter, James, and John had just spent three years with Jesus. They have seen him behave in so many different types of situations. They've seen him do powerful things and miracles. They've heard powerful messages. They've been with him in the private moments and heard special things. Even John says not all the books in the world could contain all the things we observed in these three years. So it was amazing all the stuff they experienced. But nothing like what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. You see, in that moment, they got to behold the heavenly, glorious existence of Jesus. They got to see him for who he is and the fullness of his being. That hadn't been seen by them yet. And in that moment, only the three of them got to see it. And it was so powerful that they were, they were writing about it throughout all of their writings. Peter mentions it multiple times, but it's subtle and we don't pick up on it. And John describes it as well. 
Paul, the Apostle Paul, experiences Jesus also in that transfigured way when he's blinded by the light of Jesus Christ on the way to Damascus. And so these men that had beheld the glory and the power of Jesus spoke to, speak to his return with excitement and joy that is like no other writer because they've seen it before. Have you ever taken somebody to a place that has just blown you away historically and now you're taking somebody there that has never seen it? I love, in Pennsylvania, one of my favorite places to take people is Ricketts Glen. Have you ever been there? Beautiful, beautiful place. And, and anytime I get to take somebody that has never been there before, I'm more excited to go. And so I, I'm, we're en route we get to go there, and we start walking down, and, and then the first waterfall is seen, and they're like, wow, this is me. Oh, it gets better. And it gets better. Oh, and there's more, right? Because there's like 30-something waterfalls at Ricketts Glen that's just amazing. Well, again, probably one of the most incredible place I've ever been to in my life is Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe. If I ever had the opportunity to take you there, I would be like downright giddy for like hours and days leading up to it. It's like, wait till you see it. Wait till you see it. When we take our children to some place that has meant a lot to us, and we travel there, and we know that it's going to be impressive to their eyes, isn't there just like that little bit of childhood moment inside of all our hearts when we're taking a young child to go see something for the first time? It's like, wait till you see it. Wait till you see it. Peter has that spirit in this text. He's talking to us from out of an experience where he had been given a sneak peek, if you will, to the glory and power of Jesus on that Mount of Transfiguration. And then they were told by Jesus, and you can't tell anybody until I leave here. But they held on to that just for a few more weeks. And while they were holding on to it, they had to be like, Peter, James, and John was like, man, I almost slipped up tonight. Almost said something about it. Well, they clearly began to talk about it because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all speak to the Mount of Transfiguration moment with great detail. In fact, I want to read what in Matthew's version of this. Again, he would have received this from either Peter, James, or John. And, and he is speaking as to what actually happened. So it's in verses 1 to 5, and it'll be on the screen. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. There he was, transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah. I mean, could you imagine? These are Hebrews. That These, these are their heroes, right? And then all of a sudden, they show up. So Moses and Elijah are now there talking with Jesus. So the heavens have opened. The glory of Jesus is now on display. And a couple messengers from heaven show up. This is surreal. And I'm sure that people had a hard time believing the story initially. But it was so profoundly impactful that even Matthew, Mark, and Luke said, it must have happened because we've seen the change in Peter, James, and John. So Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud 
covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So for Peter, beholding the glory of Jesus in all its brilliance, I mean, think about what you're hearing this. He, it's, Matthew is accounting that he showed up as a bright white, that it's hard to describe, and so as light as anything they'd ever seen. Does that not sound familiar to other writings by John, who was also there in this moment? And John the Revelator says that when Jesus comes on that white horse, that he will be a brilliant white a, a description that they have a hard time saying, but it's just so bright and so brilliant that it's hard to understand all that you're seeing. And then this bright cloud is also spoken of in Matthew 24 and 25. Even Jesus speaks to this bright cloud type of experience. Peter, beholding this glory, describes this in, back in verse 16 uh, through 18, that when they heard this voice, when they heard the voice of God, it was so magnificent that they gave a new name to God. Majestic glory. Majestic glory. It's the only time in scripture that that combination is given towards God. That Peter says, the only way I can explain to you what that voice was like when he is describing to Jesus, this is my son, is that the majestic glory spoke it. Again, profoundly impacting Peter. And, and so it's coming out in his writings now saying that, again, we did not follow cleverly devised stories about what's going to happen in the future where people are coming up with clever ideas. And, and even now, over the, the United States, there are people that are traveling around talking about end times, and they're giving more than what they should probably say. It's fine to go around talking about end times, and I think we need to teach on it more, but many of them are actually speaking to things that are going to happen that are not listed in Scripture. Perhaps they're cleverly devised stories. And what Peter is saying is, listen, there were people in their day that were coming up with some pretty profound stories about what Jesus might, this return might be like. But let me tell you, I was an eyewitness. I was an eyewitness to his glory and his power. So consider what I'm about to say credible because I'm an eyewitness and I also beheld his glory. Not only in visual, but I heard it, the voice of the majestic glory. And then when you consider that impact upon Peter, that he's seen something that nobody else has seen and he's talking about something that's going to happen in the future, that will replicate what he's already experienced, of course there's going to be energy in his words. Consider this in 1 Peter chapter 1. So again, his first letter, we're reading in his second letter, his first letter he says this in verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are fully alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Now, how many times have you read that verse if you've read 1 Peter before and it never stood out to you? Peter is speaking from, listen people, I have seen this glory and this power. And so 
Set your minds and be alert and sober so that you can be ready for whenever this happens. And then set your hope on this grace that is coming. And I find that fascinating. That it refers to it as a grace that is coming. Because what that means is this is a gift that is about to be given you when he shows up. And he reveals himself in his full glory and power. That the only word that he can come up to refer to it as a whole is it's a grace. A gift given to you you did not deserve. Peter did not deserve to see the full glory and power of Jesus on Mount Transfiguration. And nor will we deserve to see at the, his second coming in the full revelation of his glory and his power. We won't deserve that either. But we will receive that grace. And so he says, listen, I've seen this. So set your hope on this grace that will happen when you behold the revelation of the glorious and powerful Son of God, Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 13 of 1 Peter, he says this, But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So what's Peter saying? Because he's talking now. We've talked about how 1 Peter and 2 Peter, when we did a series on this two years ago, that this, these letters were written when the church was suffering greatly. And so he tells them, rejoice in your sufferings. Then, if you rejoice now while you're suffering, wait till you see his glorious power when he comes. You'll be overjoyed. You will be overjoyed. If you can rejoice somehow now when things are difficult, imagine how incredible joy you will feel when you actually behold his glory and his power. Okay, all right. Are you guys getting a mental picture that there should be some excitement in this moment? I mean, I, 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 this week... As I'm preparing for this sermon, I've, I've, I think I've mildly appreciated the, the transfiguration moment. But after studying it this week, I had to confess to God that I had not appreciated what had impacted those disciples so much that it's been to, talked about throughout the New Testament, and I was blind to it. And so I have a little bit of energy right now. And excitement to talk about the fact that when Jesus comes back and we get to behold him for the first time, it is going to blow us away because his glory and his power will be like nothing else we have ever beheld with our eyes. I'm just a little bit excited about it now. And Jesus and, and Peter's saying that, listen, if we can understand that life is not going to be so great all the time, in fact, this suffering church, he's saying, rejoice in your sufferings now because there will be a moment when you're going to be overjoyed when Jesus comes back. And he is coming back. And, Jesus, and Peter says, listen, this is not some cleverly devised story. We're eyewitnesses and we, are also, we have heard and beheld the glory of God upon that cloud. Verse 19 says some incredible things here. It says, we have also have this prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it. So if you have an eyewitness, and you have somebody that's beheld that glory, then his teaching that he's giving here should be trusted. It should be trusted. All right? But then he goes on to say this. 
that not only should we do well to pay attention to it, but as to a light shining in a dark place. So this teaching about his return should be like a light shining in a dark place. Does anybody feel like things have gotten a little darker in our society? So this idea, this teaching that we have in the word of God should be like a light shining in a dark place. Until, until when? The day dawns. Until the day dawns. Which is a reference to when Jesus comes back. Because keep in mind, what's his coming back going to look like? Every writer that has ever written about this moment says he will be dressed in white. It will be a brilliance like no other brilliance of white we can even describe. So it's, they talk about it that in the same way when things are so dark, when the dawn happens, all of a sudden everything is revealed. Everything's revealed. We have a little cabin that we just bought a couple years ago up in Tioga County, and we drove up late, uh, late one night in October. And so we couldn't see anything when we arrived. When we woke up the next morning, my wife got up first because our dog was saying she needed to go out. And so I hear Kristen when she wakes up and looks out the window and she goes, wow, wow. So then I got up and I looked outside and I was like, wow. Because this was the most brilliant fall I have ever seen in Pennsylvania. Was it not beautiful this year? Well, it happens first the further north you go, right? So we got to see it up there before it had happened here. And I just remember just like being so stunned by the fact we had driven in there that night. Couldn't see any of it. It was unimpressive. You couldn't even see the hills. All you could see is where the lights shined on the road and pulled into our little place. But when the dawn broke and you could see everything for what it was, just like, wow, wow. Just like in this text, when the day dawns, until the day dawns, we are going to pay attention to these words that Peter is saying. When he says that we have this prophetic message as something completely reliable and we would do well to pay attention to it until the day dawns. Until the day dawns. So we're going to lean into these words of Peter and James and John and then all the rest of the prophetic uh, statements in the word of God. We're going to pay attention to it, just like the morning star rising in our hearts, which it says there at the end of verse 19. You see, the morning star is the thing that rises in the sky, and it's there a few days a year, when it is the thing that tells you dawn is about to break. It's the bright, bright star. It's like when you see it, it's like, oh. Even though there's no light yet on the horizon of the sun rising up, when you see that star, you know it's about to break. And what he says here is that if we pay attention to the word of God and the things that are going on around us, that it will be like the morning star rising in our hearts, giving light to our hearts, that we'll begin to realize the dawn is about to come. The dawn is about to come. And so what I see here in this text is that Peter is saying at the beginning of verse 19 that the things he's given to us are scripture. And therefore the word of God of which he is saying I am my witness. I, it has been corroborated. It's been validated. And I'm telling you, you would be wise to lean into it. 
He is making a statement with them when you go into verses 20 and 21. It says, above all, you must understand that the prophets, uh, by the, that the scripture came about by the prophets, uh, leaning in on scripture and not by their own interpretation of things, but because prophecy never had its origin in human will, but happened as a result of the Spirit carrying them on. So this is word of God, and Peter's saying these things were given you are part of the word of God. So therefore, what I would say to you in light of what he is saying is that the word is the only reliable place to find truth about the return of Jesus. Any prophetic speaker that goes out there going, and again, many of them have leaned in, and I've learned a lot from them. But if they start going on their own trajectory... And adding things that are not found in Scripture, but are just their mere ideas of describing how they think things are going to happen. Keep in mind, it's clever, and it's been devised, but it's not Scripture. It's not Scripture. So the Word is the only reliable source of truth until Jesus returns. And if we lean in there, it will become light to our hearts. It will become light to our hearts as we live in a dark place. We're in a, we're in a dark times in the world. And so the word of God can become that light to our hearts as we live in this dark world. I think of, of again, the psalmist says, the, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So that the word becomes like that light. So until the day dawns, we lean into the word of God. And it gives light when everything else is dark. And then it reveals things. How can you, else can you explain the moment when Stephen, the first martyr of Christendom, in the book of Acts, it says that as he was being stoned to death, and they're throwing those rocks at him, it says that Stephen's face looked to the heavens and it was white like nothing else. How else can you explain that moment unless... Stephen was leaning in to the reality that Jesus is who he says he is, and he's coming back. How can you explain when Paul and Silas, after they had been flogged, and their backs are bleeding, and they're thrown into a dark prison, and they're in there, and they begin to sing psalms and hymns, that it had such a profound impact on the fellow prisoners in that cell that when an earthquake came and those doors went open, the prisoners stayed. And those who were securing that jail were in awe. And the jailer and his family came to Christ because there was a light shining through the darkness. Those prison cells were dark. And it was at nighttime. And they did not leave because they knew they were in the most peaceful place possible in the presence of men who had been transformed by the gift of God. How else do you explain when you see somebody in our lifetime who has just gone through something so difficult and so hard, yet they tend to have this peace about them? Been there? You see them going through deep tragedy, and yet they can say, it's well with my soul. They're still grieving. It's still hard. But what happens? They look beyond the moment because there's something to anticipate. And that hope, that grace that we'll receive, that is a hope beyond, helps me get through the, the terror of the moment. 
so too, we anticipate the glorious return of Jesus and the all that will happen in that moment. Paul writes in, in Thessalonians that we shouldn't grieve like the rest of the world grieves when somebody dies. There's kind of an image there that Paul's speaking to a group of people that are standing next to a grave, grieving hard. And it's not that we shouldn't grieve. He just says we should grieve differently. And he's not saying you shouldn't cry. Or that you shouldn't feel loss. No, he's saying you should grieve knowing that there is absence and loss. But it's not a forever grief. It's not a forever loss. And why did Peter, Paul say what he said? It's because there will be a day when Jesus comes back. And these graves will burst open. And those who are in Christ will be the first to meet him in the air. And when you know that reality, then you go back and you remember what Peter says. Be, over, be joyful even in the sufferings of now. Because you will be overjoyed when you experience the face of Jesus in his full glory and his full power. Hmm. Then he says in verses 20 to 21, and he's talking about all scripture. He says, listen, it didn't originate in the will of a prophet. What was written there? No, it was birthed by the Holy Spirit. It was birthed by the Holy Spirit. Even through all those years prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. All those years of writing the Old Testament. And the experiences that they saw even in Jesus when the Holy Spirit was on Jesus. That same Holy Spirit that you see that carried along all the writers of the Old Testament. And Jesus while he was in his ministry here is the same spirit that's in you and I. It says in Ephesians 1 that when we believe and we've given over our lives to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we are then given the Holy Spirit who becomes a mark and a seal and as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance with the Father God. And then Jesus says that that Holy Spirit, when he comes on you, will lead you into all truth. So therefore, that Holy Spirit's role is to help us understand this word of truth and to lead us into all truth so that we don't operate in error. That's a grace too. But in light of that, the word that we have here, this precious word, the 66 books that was brought on by the, the work of the Holy Spirit and all these various writers is the same word who lives in you. And therefore, you too can be carried along by the Holy Spirit as we navigate each day for all its challenges and all its blessings. Warren Wearsby made this statement. In light of this text, again, Peter's talking to a suffering church that's going through a lot. And he's also saying, we've got something to look forward to. That when Jesus returns, we're going to see him in his glory and his power. And then we'll be caught up with him. We're going to experience that personally. That Wearsby says this. It says, until the day dawns. We must be sure that the love for his coming is like the shining star in our hearts. Unless we love for his appearing, we will not look for his appearing. And it is in the word that keeps that expectation bright. You see, when you might be struggling with feeling overcome and overwhelmed by the darkness that's around you, do you turn to a particular news media outlet to find joy in your day? 
No, that's only going to lead to commiseration. You go to the Word of God that becomes an anchor to your soul, that establishes your hope is not found here on this earth. It is found in the coming of the glory of the one who saved you. So we go to the word so that it continues to keep our countenance bright, our anticipation of of what lies ahead bright. And yes, makes it a strange wonder during a season such as Christmas where we celebrate his first coming, That as we celebrate his first coming, we also anticipate his next coming. It's a strange dichotomy, but yet beautiful. So will you join me in prayer? And we're going to pray to the glorious and powerful Savior. That while he has that glory and power right now, we can't see it. But there will be a day when we can. And we anticipate it and we we let it become our hope as we live today. So let's pray now. So Jesus, you gave us your answer to the question, when? You gave us signs, but you gave us a lot of instructions about how to live until it happens. And then you gave that little powerful moment that forever changed Peter, James, and John. They write out of it. I mean, my goodness, John writes multiple times about your glory. And he keeps using the term, so brilliant, so white, beyond description. That, Lord, we can have what Peter says, a hope for the grace of the day when you fully reveal yourself to us. So work in our hearts now, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand, please? Jesus is coming.
right? Did you miss it? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Did you pick up on it? We said it both ways. He came, so therefore we're on this side of the cross. We get the opportunity to know the storyline of actually how God is going to crush the head of the snake that he said in Genesis 3.15. We know the story now because we're on this side of it. He came, but we also anticipate his next coming. Mark says this, but about that day, again, it's actually Jesus speaking, but it's in the book of Mark. But it says, but about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard. Be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house, puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone. This is Jesus' command. He says, watch, watch. Jesus' words says, the day or the hour, no one knows. No one knows. So if somebody says it's this day, well, you can pretty much be sure God's not going to let him be outdone. He knows. No human being does. But until then, we live alert. We live ready. We steward what God has given us. And we watch. If you'd like to talk with someone this morning to pray with or just to ask more questions, we'll have people in the encounter room, which is to my left, your right. They'd be glad to spend some time with you. I'll also be up front. But it's been a pleasure celebrating our son, the son of God, our savior, and our Lord with you this morning. And now we anticipate the grace of that moment when his glory and power will be revealed to us. Amen. You are dismissed.